Chapter 6, Part 4 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The lenity of the emperor confirmed the insolence of the troops. The legions imitated the example of the guards, and defended their prerogative of licentiousness with the same furious obstinacy. The administration of Alexander was an unavailing struggle against the corruption of his age. In Illyricum, in Mauritania, in Armenia, in Mesopotamia, in Germany, fresh mutinies perpetually broke out. His officers were murdered, his authority was insulted, and his life at last sacrificed to the fierce discontents of the army. One particular fact well deserves to be recorded, as it illustrates the manners of the troops and exhibits a singular instance of their return to a sense of duty and obedience. Whilst the emperor lay at Antioch in his Persian expedition, the particulars of which we shall hereafter relate, the punishment of some soldiers who had been discovered in the baths of women excited a sedition in the legion to which they belonged. Alexander ascended his tribunal, and with a modest firmness represented to the armed multitude the absolute necessity as well as his inflexible resolution of correcting the vices introduced by his impure predecessor, and of maintaining the discipline which could not be relaxed without the ruin of the Roman name and empire. Their clamors interrupted his mild expostulation. Reserve your shouts, said the undaunted emperor, till you take the field against the Persians, the Germans, and the Sarmatians. Be silent in the presence of your sovereign and benefactor, who bestows upon you the corn, the clothing, and the money of the provinces. Be silent, or I shall no longer style you soldiers, but citizens. If those indeed who disclaim the laws of Rome deserve to be ranked among the meanest of the people. His menaces inflamed the fury of the legion, and their brandished arms already threatened his person. Your courage, resumed the intrepid Alexander, would be more nobly displayed in the field of battle. Me you may destroy, you cannot intimidate, and the severe justice of the Republic would punish your crime and revenge my death. The legion still persisted in clamorous sedition, when the emperor pronounced with a loud voice the decisive sentence, Citizens, lay down your arms and depart in peace to your respective habitations. The tempest was instantly appeased. The soldiers, filled with grief and shame, silently confessed the justice of their punishment and the power of discipline, yielded up their arms and military ensigns, and retired in confusion, not to their camp, but to the several inns of the city. Alexander enjoyed, during thirty days, the edifying spectacle of their repentance, nor did he restore them to their former rank in the army, till he had punished with death those tribunes whose connivance had occasioned the mutiny. The grateful legion served the emperor whilst living, and revenged him when dead. The resolutions of the multitude generally depend on a moment, and the caprice of passion might equally determine the seditious legion to lay down their arms at the emperor's feet, or to plunge them into his breast. Perhaps, if this singular transaction had been investigated by the penetration of a philosopher, we should discover the secret causes which, on that occasion, authorized the boldness of the prince, and commanded the obedience of the troops. And, perhaps, if it had been related by a judicious historian, we should find this action worthy of Caesar himself, reduced nearer to the level of probability and the common standard of the character 
of Alexander Severus. The abilities of that amiable prince seems to have been inadequate to the difficulties of his situation, the firmness of his conduct inferior to the purity of his intentions. His virtues, as well as the vices of Alagalibus, contracted a tincture of weakness and effeminacy from the soft climate of Syria, of which he was a native, though he blushed at his foreign origin, and listened with a vain complacency to the flattering genealogists who derived his race from the ancient stock of Roman nobility. The pride and avarice of his mother cast a shade on the glories of his reign, and by exacting from his riper years the same dutiful obedience which she had justly claimed from his inexperienced youth, Memaya exposed to public ridicule both her son's character and her own. The fatigues of the Persian War irritated the military discontent. The unsuccessful event degraded the reputation of the emperor as a general and even as a soldier. Every cause prepared, and every circumstance hastened a revolution which distracted the Roman Empire with a long series of intestine calamities. The dissolute tyranny of Commodus, the civil wars occasioned by his death, and the new maxims of policy introduced by the House of Severus, had all contributed to increase the dangerous power of the army, and to obliterate the faint image of laws and liberty which still impressed on the minds of the Romans. This internal change, which undermined the foundations of the empire, we have endeavored to explain with some degree of order and perspicuity. The personal characters of the emperors, their victories, laws, follies, and fortunes, can interest us no further than as they are connected with the general history of the decline and fall of the monarchy. Our constant attention to that great object will not suffer us to overlook a most important edict of Antoninus Caracalla, which communicated to all free inhabitants of the empire the name and privileges of Roman citizens. His unbounded liberality flowed not, however, from the sentiments of a generous mind. It was the sordid result of avarice, and will naturally be illustrated by some observations on the finances of that state, from the victorious ages of the commonwealth to the reign of Alexander Severus. The siege of Veii in Tuscany, the first considerable enterprise of the Romans, was protracted to the tenth year, much less by the strength of the place than by the unskillfulness of the besiegers. The unaccustomed hardships of so many winter campaigns, at the distance of near twenty miles from home, acquired more than common encouragements, and the Senate wisely prevented the clamors of the people, by the institution of a regular pay for the soldiers, which was levied by a general tribute, assessed according to the equitable proportion on the property of the citizens. During more than two hundred years after the conquest of Veii, the victories of the Republic added less to the wealth than to the power of Rome. The states of Italy pay their tribute in military service only, and the vast force both by sea and land, which was exerted in the Punic Wars, was maintained at the expense of the Romans themselves. That high-spirited people, such as often the generous enthusiasm of freedom, cheerfully submitted to the most excessive but voluntary burdens, in the just confidence that they should speedily enjoy the rich harvest of their labors. Their expectations were not disappointed. In the course of a few years the riches of Syracuse, of Carthage, of Macedonia, and of Asia, were brought in triumph to Rome. The treasures of Perseus alone amounted to near two million sterling, and the Roman people, the sovereign of so many nations, was forever delivered from the weight of taxes. The increasing revenue of the provinces was found sufficient to defray the ordinary establishment of war and government, 
and the superfluous mass of gold and silver was deposited in the temple of Saturn, and reserved for any unforeseen emergency of the state. History has never, perhaps, suffered a greater or more irreparable injury than in the loss of that curious register bequeathed by Augustus to the Senate, in which that experienced prince so accurately balanced the revenues and expenses of the Roman Empire. Deprived of this clear and comprehensive estimate, we are reduced to collect a few imperfect hints from such of the ancients as have accidentally turned aside from the splendid to the more useful parts of history. We are informed that, by the conquests of Pompeii, the tributes of Asia were raised from fifty to one hundred and thirty-five millions of drachms, or about four millions and one-half of sterling. Under the last and most indolent of the Ptolemies, the revenue of Egypt is said to have amounted twelve thousand five hundred talents, a sum equivalent to more than two millions and a half of our money, but which was afterwards considerably improved by the more exact economy of the Romans, and the increase of trade of Ethiopia and India. Gaul was enriched by rapine, as Egypt was by commerce, and the tributes of those two great provinces have been compared as nearly equal to each other in value. The ten thousand Euboic or Phoenician talents, about four million sterling, which vanquished Carthage, was condemned to pay within a term of fifty years, were a slight acknowledgment to the superiority of Rome, and cannot bear the least proportion with the taxes afterwards raised both on the lands and on the persons of the inhabitants, when the fertile coast of Africa was reduced into a province. Spain, by a very singular fatality, was the Peru and Mexico of the Old World. The discovery of the rich western continent by the Phoenicians, and the oppression of the simple natives, who were compelled to labor in their own mines for the benefit of strangers, form an exact type of the more recent history of Spanish America. The Phoenicians were acquainted only with the seacoast of Spain. Avarice, as well as ambition, carried the arms of Rome and Carthage into the heart of the country, and almost every part of the soil was found pregnant with copper, silver, and gold. Mention is made of a mine near Carthagena, which yielded every day 25,000 drachms of silver, or about 300,000 pounds a year. 20,000 pounds weight of gold was annually received from the provinces of Asturia, Galicia, and Lusitania. We want both leisure and materials to pursue this curious inquiry through the many potent states which were annihilated in the Roman Empire. Some notion, however, may be formed of the revenue of the provinces, where considerable wealth had been deposited by nature, or collected by man, if we observe the severe attention that was directed to the abodes of solitude and sterility. Augustus once received a petition from the inhabitants of Gyarus, humbly praying that they may be relieved from one-third of their excessive impositions. Their whole tax amounted indeed to no more than 150 drachms, or about five pounds. But Gyarus was a little island, or rather a rock, in the Aegean Sea, destitute of fresh water and every necessity of life, and inhabited by only a few wretched fishermen. From the faint glimmerings of such doubtful and scattered lights, we should be inclined to believe, first, that, with every fair allowance for the difference of times and circumstances, the general income of the Roman provinces could seldom amount to less than fifteen or twenty millions of our money, and, secondly, that so ample a revenue must have been fully adequate to all the expenses of the moderate government instituted by Augustus, whose court was the modest family of a private senator, and whose military establishment was calculated for the defense of the frontiers, 
without any aspiring views of conquest or any serious apprehension of a foreign invasion. Notwithstanding the seeming probability of both these conclusions, the latter of them at least is positively disowned by the language and conduct of Augustus. It is not easy to determine whether, on this occasion, he acted as the common father of the Roman world, or as the oppressor of liberty, whether he wished to relieve the provinces, or to impoverish the senate and the equestrian order. But no sooner had he assumed the reins of government than he frequently intimated the insufficiency of the tribunes, and the necessity of throwing an equitable proportion of the public burden upon Rome and Italy. In the prosecution of this unpopular design, he advanced, however, by cautious and well-weighted steps. The introduction of customs was followed by the establishment of an excise, and the scheme of taxation was compelled by an artful assessment on the real and personal property of the Roman citizens, who had been exempted from any kind of contribution above a century and a half. 1. In a great empire, like that of Rome, a natural balance of money must have gradually established itself. It had already been observed that, as the wealth of the provinces was attracted to the capital by the strong hand of conquest and power, so a considerable part of it was restored to the industrious provinces by the gentle influence of commerce and arts. In the reign of Augustus and his successors, duties were imposed on every kind of merchandise, which through a thousand channels flowed to the great center of opulence and luxury. In whatsoever manner the law was expressed, it was the Roman purchaser and not the provincial merchant who paid the tax. The rate of the customs varied from the eighth to the fortieth part of the value of the commodity, and we have a right to suppose that the variation was directed by the unalterable maximums of policy, that a higher duty was fixed on the articles of luxury than on those of necessity, and that the productions raised or manufactured by the labor of the subjects of the empire were treated with more indulgence than was shown to the pernicious, or at least the unpopular commerce of Arabia and India. There is still extant a long but imperfect catalogue of eastern commodities. About the time of Alexander Severus, were subject to the payment of duties, cinnamon, myrrh, pepper, ginger, and the whole tribe of aromatics, a great variety of precious stones, among which the diamond was the most remarkable for its price, and the emerald for its beauty. Parthian and Babylonian leather, cottons, silks, both raw and manufactured, ebony, ivory, and eunuchs. We may observe that the use and value of those infeminate slaves gradually rose with the decline of the empire. 2. The excise, introduced by Augustus after the civil wars, was extremely moderate, but it was general. It seldom exceeded one per cent, but it comprehended whatever was sold in the markets or by public auction, from the most considerable purchases of land and houses to those minute objects which can only derive a value from their infinite multitude and daily consumption. Such a tax, as it affects the body of the people, has ever been the occasion of clamor and discontent. An emperor, well acquainted with the wants and resources of the state, was obliged to declare, by a popular edict, that the support of the army depended, in a great measure, on the produce of the excise. 3. When Augustus resolved to establish a permanent military force for the defense of his government against foreign and domestic enemies, he instituted a peculiar treasury for the pay of the soldiers, the rewards of the veterans, and the extraordinary expenses of war. The ample revenue of the excise, though peculiarly apportioned to the uses, was found inadequate. To supply the deficiency, the emperor suggested a new tax of 5% on all legacies and inheritances, 
but the nobles of Rome were more tenacious of property than of freedom. Their indignant murmurs were received by Augustus with his usual temper. He candidly referred the whole business to the Senate, and exhorted them to provide for the public service by some other expedient of a less odious nature. They were divided and perplexed. He insinuated to them that their obstinacy would oblige him to propose a general land tax and capitation. They acquiesced in silence. The new imposition on legacies and inheritances was, however, mitigated by some restrictions. It did not take place unless the object was of a certain value, most probably a fifty or a hundred pieces of gold. Nor can it be exacted from the nearest kin on the father's side. When the rights of nature and property were thus secured, it seemed reasonable that a stranger or a distant relation, who acquired an unexpected acquisition of fortune, should cheerfully resign a twentieth part of it for the benefit of the state. Such a tax, plentiful as it must prove in every wealthy community, was most happily suited to the situation of the Romans, who could frame their arbitrary wills according to the dictates of reason or caprice without any restraint from the modern fetters of entails and settlements. From various causes, the partiality of paternal affection often lost its influence over the stern patriots of the commonwealth and the dissolute nobles of the empire, and if the father bequeathed to a son a fourth part of his estate, he removed all grounds of legal complaint. But a rich, childless old man was a domestic tyrant, and his power increased with his years and infirmities. A servile crowd, in which he frequently reckoned, praetors and consuls courted his smiles, pampered his avarice, and applauded his follies, served his passions, and waited with impatience for his death. The arts of attendance and flattery were formed into a most lucrative science, and those who professed it acquired a peculiar appellation, and the whole city, according to the lively descriptions of satire, were divided into two parties, the hunters and their game. Yet while so many unjust and extravagant wills were every day dictated with cunning and subscribed by folly, a few were the result of rational esteem and virtuous gratitude. Cicero, who had so often defended the lives and fortunes of his fellow citizens, was rewarded with legacies to the amount of 170,000 pounds. Nor do the friends of the younger Pliny seem to have been less generous to that amiable orator. Whatever was the motive of the testator, the treasury claimed without distinction the twentieth part of his estate, and in the course of two or three generations the whole property of the subject must have gradually passed through the coffers of the state. In the first and golden years of the reign of Nero, that prince, from a desire of popularity, and perhaps from a blind impulse of benevolence, conceived a wish of abolishing the oppression of the customs and excise. The wisest senators applauded his magnanimity, but they diverted him from the execution of a design which would have dissolved the strength and resources of the republic. Had it indeed been possible to realize this dream of fancy, such princes as Trajan and the Antonines would surely have embraced with ardor the glorious opportunity of conferring so signal of obligation on mankind. Satisfied, however, with alleviating the public burden, they attempted not to remove it. The mildness and precision of their laws ascertained the rule and measure of taxation, and protected the subject of every rank against arbitrary interpretations, antiquated claims, and the insolent vexation of the farmers of the revenue. For it is somewhat singular that, in every age, the best and wisest of the Roman governors persevered in this pernicious method of collecting the principal branches, at least of the excise and customs. The sentiments, and indeed the situation of Caracalla, were very different from those of the Antonines. Inattentive, or rather averse to the welfare of his people, 
he found himself under the necessity of gratifying the insatiate avarice which he had excited in the army. Of the several impositions introduced by Augustus, the twentieth on inheritances and the legacies was the most fruitful as well as the most comprehensive. As its influence was not confined to Rome or Italy, the produce continually increased with the gradual extension of the Roman city. The new citizens, though charged on equal terms with the payment of new taxes which had not affected them as subjects, derived an ample compensation from the rank they obtained, the privileges they acquired, and the fair prospect of honors and fortune which was thrown open to their ambition. But the favor which implied a distinction was lost in the prodigality of Caracalla, and the reluctant provincials were compelled to assume the vain title and real obligations of Roman citizens. Nor was the rapacious son of Severus contented with such a measure of taxation as had appeared sufficient to his moderate predecessors. Instead of a twentieth, he exacted a tenth of all legacies and inheritances. And during his reign, for the ancient proportion was restored after his death, he crushed alike every part of the empire under the weight of his iron scepter. When all the provincials became liable to the peculiar impositions of Roman citizens, they seemed to acquire a legal exemption from the tributes which they had paid in their former conditions of subjects. Such were not the maxims of government adapted by Caracalla and his pretended son. The old, as well as the new taxes, were, at the same time, levied in the provinces. It was reserved for the virtue of Alexander to relieve them in a great measure from this intolerable grievance by reducing the tributes to a thirteenth part of the sum exacted at the time of his accession. It is impossible to conjecture the motive that engaged him to spare so trifling a remnant of the public evil, but the noxious weed, which had not been totally eradicated, again sprang up with the most luxuriant growth, and in the succeeding age darkened the Roman world with its deadly shade. In the course of this history we shall be too often summoned to explain the land tax, the capitation, and the heavy contributions of corn, wine, oil, and meat which were exacted from the provinces for the use of the court, the army, and the capital. As long as Rome and Italy were respected as the center of government, a national spirit was preserved by the ancient and insensibly imbibed by the adopted citizens. The principal commands of the army were filled by men who had received a liberal education and were well instructed in the advantages of laws and letters, and who had risen by equal steps through the regular succession of civil and military honors. To their influence and example, we may partly ascribe the modest obedience of the legions during the first two centuries of the imperial history. But when the last enclosure of the Roman constitution was trampled down by Caracalla, the separation of possessions gradually seceded to the division of ranks. The more polished citizens of the internal provinces were alone qualified to act as lawyers and magistrates. The rougher trade of arms were abandoned to the peasants and barbarians of the frontiers, who knew no country but their camp, no science but that of war, no civil laws, and scarcely those of military discipline. With bloody hands, savage manners, and desperate resolutions, they sometimes guarded, but more oftener subverted, the throne of the emperors. End of chapter 6, part 4